The Man Whore Podcast is sponsored by HotMovies.com. Try out some ethical, paid-for porn for free with none of those hidden fees or secret subscriptions when you sign up at HotMovies.com and use the promo code MANHOR. The Man Whore Podcast is sponsored by Alt Playground. APG is more than just a place to find couples to swap with. Alt Playground is a lifestyle community for all non-monogamous and sexually adventurous people to connect and share. And you know I started a profile. Join me over at altplayground.net. That's A-L-T playground.net. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Now let's get to the show. Welcome to the Man Whore Podcast. Shout out to all you rug munchers, carpet stompers, and human furniture. This is Billy Presida, and you're listening to the Man Whore Podcast. I'm in trouble, everybody. I am in big trouble. I fucked up. I came on Megan's rug. I mean, I didn't like mean to come on Megan's rug, but like I came on Megan's rug. Why am I telling you this? Because, well, just I've been on her shit list for the last 24 hours and it's on the top of my mind. I was uh, I was just shooting a, a fun video for the OnlyFans. <laughs> she left me home uh, at her place alone. And I was like, ah, let's jerk off with one of her toys. Send a video afterwards. Make some money on it. She was like, what are you, were you thinking coming on my rug? I was like, I don't know. When I jerk off, honestly, I'm not thinking very much. But the honest answer to what I was thinking was I was, I was thinking about my girlfriend riding me while a, a friend of ours sat on my face. I thought that was sweet to shoot a video capturing that thought. But am I really that much of a monster coming on a rug? Y'all can email me on this one. I... I didn't think it was that big of a deal until I found out just how big of a deal coming on your girlfriend's rug was. And if anyone's asking, no, to my knowledge, it's not like stained. It's just the fact that it came on my girlfriend's rug. Welcome to the podcast. If you're new, I'm your host coming on rugs, Presida. Uh, This week on the show, we have got on sex researcher and author Justin Lay Miller. He's got a new book out right now called Tell Me What You Want, which is both a book title and a plea for help from a man in a bedroom. I'm recording this on Monday night. I don't know what happened. I don't know if everything's still intact. It probably is. Uh, I don't know what the outcome was. I don't know what the deal is. I don't know any of the controversies. I know none of the things that are trending after 18 p.m. Monday night, Eastern time. Oh, but... I want to tell y'all real quick before I get to my guest this week about uh, me in the first grade, sexy. Uh, When I was, I think, about six years old, my first grade teacher, Mrs. Gundla, she she told us that there was a tornado in New Jersey 
like a hundred years ago, right? And I freaked the fuck out. Tornado scared the shit out of me. When you first learn about a tornado, when you are like literally a, a baby child person, you think Wizard of Oz, you think Kansas, you think that's far away, so it's okay. When she made a tornado in New Jersey a reality, I freaked out at the age of whatever, six, seven, and to respond to my fear of tornadoes, I began listening to 1010 Winds News on the radio every night when I went to bed, going to bed every night, I'm listening to 1010 Winds News because when tornadoes happen, they typically announce them on the news. This is before the TikTok and the Twitter. And I would listen nonstop probably for five, six, maybe even seven years. Most of grade school, I'm listening to the news because that was my way of trying to get some control, thinking, well, so long as I stay informed, I'm going to be safe. And ever since like 2015, 2016, I've been watching the news non-fucking-stop. And to me, it's a little bit more enraging because like I am trained in media literacy. I went to school, I went to college to learn about how uh, media portrays information, manipulates information. So like I get to uh, take in the news on, on various levels when I'm watching. And I've been doing that nonstop because again, I was fearful for where this country was going. Not too much for me. Remember, let's let's remember what my face looks like. I, yeah, no matter how this shakes out, I'll be fairly okay, but mostly everyone that I love in my life, who I hang out with, who I'm friends with, who I work with, won't be. And and that terrified me. So I watched the news nonstop as my way to control, thinking that uh, you know, knowledge was power. That's what they taught us. Knowledge was power. And I gotta tell you, in a time right now where like not knowing shit, like not reading. My dad brags about how little he's read. He's like, eh, I've only read four books my entire life and I own a company. Look at me. Eh, look at all this money I made. I don't even read the stuff. Ah, email. Come on. I don't read emails unless they're Hillary Clinton's. Come on. We got to catch her. You know, it's, it's in, in, a, in a culture right now where being informed is a threat to what you believe and therefore information is a threat and not not empowering, I got to say, I feel very powerless being informed. So something I am, I am committing myself to doing for a period, um, as soon as we have an outcome to this election, is shutting off that news during the daytime and staying away uh, from, from constantly opening Twitter just to see what's trending to see if I miss some shit. And just letting the brain fucking relax. I'm too informed. I'm so informed, I'm more scared than I was before. I hate that we live in a world right now where ignorance actually is bliss. I wish we all wanted to know more things. I think that would prevent a lot of shit if we all just knew better. But I'm tapping out. (laughs) I need to be a little less informed for a little while. And when I was thinking about how I interact with news media today, I did think back to being in the first grade, which began a, a, a years-long <laughs> relationship with a news radio station, instead of, you know, jamming out to the hits on Z100. Even though no matter how many times I called Elvis Duran, they never fucking played Run DMC. So that's what I'm going to be doing. 
I need to put my focus a little bit elsewhere. One of the things that I I, I think about in in putting my focus elsewhere is focusing on like, well, where I look, if the country hasn't grown and changed, if the country has regressed, that doesn't mean I've regressed. Four years ago, I was 27 years old. And I think back to like, where was I four years ago? Four years ago, I was finishing up at my office job that I desperately wanted to quit to pursue talking to you fuckers about my dick full time. Four years ago, I was uh, still obsessed with my internet fight with a certain segment of the sex educator world, and uh, and I was still in denial about what I needed to learn from it. And I was still uh, obsessed with being right on the internet. Four years ago, I wasn't I I wasn't in therapy yet, right? And four years ago, I w- I was still weeks away from ending a, a two year standoff with my family. Uh, longtime fan whores know, like I spent the first couple years of the show, like I wasn't speaking to my family. Uh, I, I hadn't done a single man whore con yet. We've had three plus a canceled one. Thank you, COVID. I hadn't done any live podcasts yet. We've done six so far in four different cities. And since the 2016 election, I've been published in Marie Claire. I've hit number one in the sexuality section of Apple Podcasts. I've been listed every year in some major top sex podcast listicles. Hey, I've interviewed some of the biggest names in porn. I've, I've driven cross country. I've, I've learned how to use the mute button on Twitter. And I'm currently in a relationship with a, a motivated, beautiful boss of a woman. And though it's always a struggle, I, I am in a better place feeling sexy at, at, at any size of mine. I've grown and I've changed over the last four years. And just because the country has been a fucking dumpster fire the entire time doesn't discount all that. So I don't know. I've 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 accomplished things. I think I think it's a nice time to self audit what the last four years life has been for you in your life, and you might be able to find some joy there. Because comparing myself now to where I was four years ago is a very slight reassurance that shit might be okay. I don't know. We'll see, everybody. A little point of business to announce everybody, the Manhorn Podcast Patreon page. We're now offering annual discounted memberships. I know it's been requested out there. Some of y'all wish you could just kind of throw the money down and not have to think about it month to month. So for those of y'all who enjoy that type of thing, uh, that is now available. And if you pay the entire year up top, you get a discount that equates to like one month off. Something to think about. For those of you who've been curious about the benefits of membership, and one of those people could tell you about uh, the benefits of membership is uh, AS. I guess AS wants to be a, a little bit more anonymous just using the initials, and that's okay with me because I love it. He's a loyal soldier of the fan whore army, and that's fine. If I had to guess, he's probably like, I don't know, like a staff sergeant. I don't know, just going to take a, a wild guess over there. But thank you, AS, for being a member. And you too can join AS and the rest of the Fan Whore Army over at patreon.com slash podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash podcast. Great way to connect with like-minded listeners. Great way to support the show. And now for this week's guest, Justin Lay Miller. You know, this one, uh, this is a fun one. It's virtual. We're doing it over the Zoom thing. 
I am I am adapting and uh, opening myself up to a virtual connection with someone. After it went so well with uh, Angela Chen, that one was virtual and that was great. So I uh, did it again with Justin, wasn't disappointed. But Justin Miller, he is a uh, sex researcher. Uh, he works with the Kinsey Institute. He is an author. He's got a book out. It's called Tell Me What You Want. And he's talking about the research he's been doing on sexual desires. And even now, uh, he's been studying the effects of COVID on human sexuality. Very curious what uh, the the data on that uh, will turn out to be when we see it, however many months or years from now. Uh, but for now, we got Justin Miller. Let's go do it. God, I hope Biden won. So we're all like stress masturbating, right? Is that that's all what we're doing here? Cool, because then <laughs> I've got the perfect sponsor for you. Hotmovies.com. Yes. Gosh, we love here at the Man Whore Podcast two things. We love hashtag paying for some of our porn, and we love hotmovies.com. I mean, I, I also love my girlfriend. I should probably say that. And my mom. I, there are a lot of things we love here at the show, but we love paying for porn and we love doing it at Hot Movies. And right now, holy shit, you know, I was just going to go browse for funny titles to to comment on. But right now they're running a special through November 7th. Get 20% off all facial clips. That is facial clips, by the way, for like all the gender configurations. So straight porn, fetish porn, gay porn, all of it. If you like some sort of human getting their face cummed on. There is a sale for you right now at hotmovies.com. And on top of the 20% off all facial clips through November 7th, uh, you can get 20 bonus minutes on top of any package you sign up for when you use promo code MANHOR at hotmovies.com. The Manhor Podcast is proud to be sponsored by altplayground.net. The place to go for your next non-monogamous adventure. Hey, yes, APG has been changing the game in the lifestyle scene because it's not, you know, it's not your parents' swinger site, okay? Because th- that was a thing. There was, you know, we had the kids on the apps and we had the adults on outdated, crappy websites. And APG is bringing these worlds together. And APG is a great way to connect with like-minded, sexy people. Yep. And because of the way, you know, things are in the world, you know, that whole COVID thing, uh, APG thinks is so important to connect with other couples and other singles virtually, especially for the time being. Come meet me and all your other favorite lifestyle podcasts over there, like the Front Porch Swingers and the Naked Relationship Podcast, the Monogamish Podcast. Oh, and you know what? Our friends over at Hot Miss Comedy Hour, Andrea and Emily, they're over there too. We're all over on APG. Come say hi at altplayground.net. That's A-L-T playground.net. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now let's get to the show. The way that I approach research is I, I really 
do it as a true scientist, where I try to be as objective as possible and let the data and evidence guide me, uh, rather than being guided by my personal opinions or uh, political ideologies. And there are lots of people in my field who are, are kind of agenda driven. And, you know, so that's what I want to steer clear of. And I want people to know that when I'm putting research out that I'm driven by the data and I'm not afraid to say things that might be controversial and that, you know, might not go over well with certain audiences, because if that's what the data say, that's what they are. Right. It's like, I can't change the numbers and I can't change what participants answered. Do you find that you also have to kind of like have less, because there are a lot of sex researchers who have like, even if they don't have as much an agenda, like they have a personality, mm -hmm. we could say. Yes. <laughs> and do you, do you try to pull back that lever or do you feel like you can still be Justin out in, in public? Well, so my career is interesting because it's transitioned in, in that I was a full-time college professor and academic for 10 years. And I left about two and a half years ago to kind of go off and do my own thing. I still conduct research and have a, a very part-time academic appointment, but I work primarily as a public speaker and author and a consultant for sexual health and wellness companies. And so a big part of what I do is taking the science and communicating it to the public. And when you're engaged in that kind Kind of communication. It's very different from writing for uh, your peers in an academic journal article. So I have to let my personality come through. Otherwise, I'd be boring as fuck. Yeah, yeah. I also don't, I don't envy you trying to communicate, uh, translate the, yep. the, the, the research <laughs> to the dumb populace that I am a part of. You have to deal with. Uh, but that's a good time to say I'm chatting right now with Dr. Justin Lay Miller, uh, author of the book, new book, Tell Me What You Want. What is a controversial opinion you, you, you have found? Well, not sorry, not a controversial opinion, but what what is a controversial finding you have you have expressed from research that people like really clenched up about? <laughs> so there were lots of things that went into the book that I was very concerned how other people would would react to them. Uh, so as one example, one of the things I found was that people who had more BDSM fantasies were more likely to have had a previous experience with sexual victimization. And there's a lot of research out there finding that BDSM practitioners are no more likely to have had a history of sexual abuse or victimization. And so my results were inconsistent with that. And a lot of people argue very vehemently that, you know, there is no link between victimization and BDSM interests because they feel like that's stigmatizing and pathologizing to the community. Uh, so I was very concerned about writing that in terms of what the reaction would be. Uh, and so I <laughs> tried as hard as I could to, to be very careful and delicate in the way that I framed this and to say that, you know, not everyone who is into BDSM has a history of victimization and that, uh, you know, lots of people who are victimized do not go on to have BDSM interest. And so I, I was surprised pleasantly that I didn't end up getting attacked over that. But I think that that's part of what, you know, I've learned to do in my career is to communicate about things very, very carefully because I'm dealing with a lot of very fraught topics. Mm-hmm. And you're also dealing with people who are not like trained on how to digest 
you yes. know, these messages or how to digest even media. I mean, honestly, I, I usually don't come to these things I told you with questions, but the only thing I was like, ooh, I definitely will want to mention like sex study headlines because, <laughs> you know, how somehow we go from study to the abstract that's publicly available to a shitty article written with a sensationalized headline. Uh, it's like the worst game of telephone that just ever fucking happens. Exactly. Because, because like you, you were saying like, oh, I'm nervous about like sh- saying like, there's kind of a link or there's a trend like there's a difference and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a difference between a link or a trend and like causal, right? It's, it's not that like one thing causes the other, but you can also just see like trends. Like there's a trend of like new England Patriots fans who also tend to be assholes, right? That's it's not causal. Being a Pats fan doesn't make you a jerk. It's just like uh, a lot of Pats fans tend to be jerks. They're, they're, those are separate statements, right? Yeah. So just because a correlation exists does not mean that there's cause and effect. And I'm always very clear to say that in, in my data and in my research. Um, but you know, one of the other things is that correlations vary in size. Some of them are pretty small. Some of them are pretty large. And so you always have to contextualize it. And so in this case with the, the BDSM victimization link, it was pretty small. Uh, and so, you know, that doesn't mean that the, everyone or the vast majority of people who are into BDSM have that history. And so it's always important to provide that context. But I think we have to recognize that this link does exist and maybe it's clinically meaningful uh, in terms of, you know, if you have uh, therapists who are dealing with patients um, uh, who have a history of victimization, you know, it's important for them to understand how that might shape their future sexual interests. Could that lead to someone who's well-intentioned asking questions that end up being like presumptive? If somebody is not a well-trained clinician, yes, absolutely. Like me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I I think as a sex researcher, as an educator, as a therapist, the key thing you have to understand about sex and sexual fantasy and sexual desire is that it's enormously complex Mm -hmm. and that two people could have the same sexual fantasy or desire, but for totally different reasons. And so you can't make these big, broad assumptions and say, ah, well, you're into BDSM, therefore I know everything about you, because that would be a pretty bullshit (laughs) assumption to make. And, you know, unfortunately, there are a lot of therapists who approach their work that way because they have their own personal biases against um, maybe people who are into BDSM or people who have other kinky types of sexual interests. And so, you know, we want our sex therapists to be sex positive and to understand that complexity in order to best meet the needs of their patients. Yeah. And and at what you you know, you said like, hey, sometimes the data does overwhelmingly, you know, the correlation is very strong. At what point, because sexuality is so messy, complex, not it's not a, the clearest of sciences. It's like at what point does a, an overwhelming correlation um at what point do you just call that like, yes, this causes this or this most likely like this usually causes this? Well, I would say that every science is a messy science because um, there is no such thing as a perfect study. There's always limitations. There's yeah, we can't even caveats. decide. We can't even decide if squirting is pee yet. Uh, to which, by the way, I say, who cares? Uh, yeah. But it's, 
Like, and what so? <laughs> and, and so this is where we need to have multiple studies and you need to use a lot of different methods. And so one of the ways that you can try and establish cause and effect is to do an actual experiment rather than, uh, you know, just do a survey where you're looking at associations between different variables. You can also do longitudinal studies where you survey people at different points in time and look at how uh, things today predict behavior a year from now or two years from now. And that can give you more of a sense of, you know, is there likely a causal linkage here? So ideally, you've got multiple studies with multiple methods before you can draw any kind of definitive conclusion. What even made you want to study sex of all the things one gets to study? Like, (laughs) why did you focus on this one? Well, it's not the case that I grew up thinking, oh, I want to be a sex researcher, because I didn't even know that this was a field that you could go into and I think, if, I think if pubescent boys knew that you could just study sex, I feel like that's all they would do. It would have changed my whole life a long time ago. <laughs> Ma, it's not just watching porn. I'm researching. I have a dream. <laughs> or, you know, sometimes I actually do have to watch porn for the work that I do because Same. I need to understand, um, you know, people's sexual interests and what they're like. So, you know, for example, a few years ago, I wrote an article for Playboy on men who like to watch their wives or girlfriends have sex with other men. You know, this is an interest called cuckolding. And so I was writing an article about it. There's almost no research on it. So I had to kind of go watch some cuckolding porn to figure out like, how do these scenarios typically play out? What are the characteristics that people are drawn to? And so, you know, that can really help to you to better understand what's going on. But that but does watching say the porn of of cuckolding like really give you an idea of what cuckolding is if we're if we're all trying to accept that like porn sex isn't real sex so the way a cuckolding scene happens in a porn isn't, you know, necessarily representative of how it plays out in real life. Sure. I mean, there's absolutely a difference between porn sex and real sex, but I also can't walk into people's bedrooms and watch what they're actually doing. So, you know, porn can give you some sense or some approximation of the way that people might like these fantasy scenarios to carry out because lots of people go to porn as a way of vicariously living out their fantasies. So you can learn something from it. But yes, you know, you're absolutely right that you can't draw too many conclusions or inferences from from porn itself. Sure. So so what was like the dream in high school? Like what was it you thought you were going to do when you grew up? Well, it, it's kind of funny. In high school, I, I really had uh, three separate interests. So in my high school, we had a couple of psychology courses that I took that I absolutely loved. And I was also, I wrote for our high school newspaper. I took all the journalism courses and I also loved my criminal justice courses that I took in high school as well. So I had this interest in law, psychology and, and journalism. And my parents basically didn't want me to do any of those things. Uh, they wanted me to do, you know, choose a safe career where, you know, you can just go right in, come out and make a, you know, decent living. Um, so initially I was. I went to college to be an occupational therapist and it's because my mom said, Hey, my friend is, is an OT and she says they need men in this field and you can do this five-year master's program and come out and make $50,000. And, and so it's like, <laughs> go into this, go into this uh, massive amount of debt because you know, my friend says it's good. Yeah. <laughs> And so, you know, I did that in school for a year and I was like, this, this is not doing it for me. Mm -hmm. And I I had a 4.0 
great average. And so I think it, my parents trusted me that I could kind of go off and do something riskier. They're like, okay, you know, do what you want to do. So I switched into psychology and then kind of as the process went along and I was working on my, my doctorate, I was studying the psychology of romantic relationships and I was assigned to be a teaching assistant for a human sexuality course, which I had never taken in my life because I went to Catholic schools, <laughs> uh, for, for most of my, um, uh, you know, elementary school and also my college was a Catholic college. So how'd you I didn't, pick the romantic relationship uh, focus? I just thought it sounded interesting. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't have big grand plans for my career, but it, it's funny that my career ended up now to a point where I am a psychologist and I write and communicate and speak about research for the public. So I have that journalistic component, but at the same time, I'm also now involved as an expert witness in a lot of sex related court cases. And so somehow accidentally, I was able to combine all of my interests in psychology, the law and journalism all into one. So it's really the the perfect career for me, but it took a long time to get here and was totally accidental. Yeah. <laughs> and so wait, and you were brought up, you were brought up Catholic. So was it like a fairly, we don't talk about that topic so, you know, my religious background is kind of muddled because my dad's side of the family was Catholic. My mom's side was Baptist. And so when they got married, my mom said, okay, let's pick a compromise religion. And so they raised us in the, a Lutheran church because my mom said, that sounds like it's in the middle. And so, <laughs> you know, we started going there. Um, and I was in public school for the first couple of years, but then my parents transferred us and put us in Catholic school for some reason. Uh, so, you know, kind of grew up in the Lutheran church, but then started going to Catholic schools. But all of our local like sports and uh, community was actually at our local Jewish community center because my dad signed us up there to because he liked the gym facilities. And so I kind of also grew up in the Jewish community and everybody thought that I was Jewish growing up because I was part of <laughs> the Jewish community center. So, you know, my religious background is like, I learned a lot about a lot of different things, but I never really had one like core identity because I was kind of felt pulled in a lot of directions. But did you feel like that? Like, you know, you had, you would reference like, oh, I never took the sex class. I was raised Catholic for Christ's sake. So it's like, you know, <laughs> what, what, what did do you feel like that kind of had an effect of introducing you as you start leaning into this? Like I'm studying sex. I'm a sex researcher. Are you? finding yourself clashing with some of that upbringing or was sex not like as damnified as, as some Catholic households can be? Yeah. I mean, it, sex just wasn't something that we talked about very much in my household growing up. Um, but I didn't, my, my parents didn't really give me much <laughs> in the way of sex education. And there really just wasn't any in the schools. Cause yeah. by the time I was in the fifth grade and we actually had sex ed, it was, I, I remember that day so vividly. I was so excited. Uh, I pulled out my notebook and I wrote sex ed really big <laughs> at the top of the page. And at the end of the course, I had literally written nothing because I, I left that class knowing less than I did going in. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> and that was, you know, that was my only experience with sex ed, really. Uh, so everything that I knew about sex was kind of like what my friends told me or what I picked up in the media. And so I, I really knew nothing. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the messages I got from school, uh, were really just don't have sex, don't do drugs, you know, and that's kind of like all they told us. But, you know, when you tell kids not to do things, that just makes them want to do it even more. The same is true of adults, right? Um, because the more that something becomes taboo or forbidden, the more it, it sort of has this power over us that makes us kind of want to do it. And it, that's a big part of the reason why in my research on sexual fantasies, I find that the really taboo things are really amongst the most erotically appealing uh, things that people are drawn to. Right. Were, did, were you finding yourself as you began your career in you know, researching sexuality coming from this psychology background, like, were you finding yourself shocked by certain things and learning about you're like, they put what, where they do. <laughs> that's a thing for, huh? You know, like, did you find yourself being like, I had no idea this even existed? Absolutely. Cause like I said, I knew nothing. And, and when I, was initially assigned to be a teaching assistant for that sex course. It was the most eye-opening experience of my life because, A, I didn't know that sex research even existed, but then I'm starting to learn about all of this sexual diversity, relationship diversity, where our interests and desires come from, what we do know, what we don't know. And one of the big things that I took away from that experience was, you know, as a teaching assistant, I had to run these weekly recitation sections where I had 25 students and me, and they would just be asking me all their sex questions. I didn't know the answers to them. I, you know, I realized how little they knew, how little I know, and how, you know, semester after semester, the same questions keep coming up. And I would oftentimes try and go look for an answer if I didn't know it. And I didn't know much at the beginning. And I would find that there was no research on it. And so that's part of why I kind of transitioned from being uh, more of a relationship researcher to being more of a sexuality researcher is because it's just such an understudied area with so many important questions that have yet to be answered. It sounds like as you you know did your research, there's a, a huge element of self-education, kind of like every step of the way. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> I mean, you learn things about yourself, you learn things about other people. It helps you to better understand the world in general and why sex is such a politically controversial topic. And, you know, so it, it it's fascinating from a, a science and research perspective, but also, you know, you learn things about it on a personal level too. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and you also, uh, you work with currently, or you used to work with the Kinsey Institute? I do work with the Kinsey Institute. I am a research fellow there. And so I do a lot of uh, work with them on on studies. And our latest study is looking at the impact of th this pandemic on people's sex lives and relationships. So we actually started a study in mid-March and we've been following up with our participants every two to four weeks to look at how their sex lives are changing. And it's just, it's a fascinating data. Hey, you didn't you didn't want to talk to me. You didn't want you didn't want to know how my sex life been changing. How the man whore boy is uh, fairly sexless these days. <laughs> I, I I I want to want to fuck so badly, uh, so badly, Justin. <laughs> I, hey, I get it. And you're in line with our participants. You know, rates of sex are down, and and this is surprising to a lot of people. People are actually masturbating less right now too, and it, it's kind of funny because when this pandemic really started to kick into high gear in, in March. And we went into these lockdowns and quarantines. There were all these media headlines saying there's going to be a coronavirus baby boom. Uh, <laughs> you know, porn use is skyrocketing. <laughs> Sex toys are flying off the shelves. Amazon can't keep dildos in stock. 
uh, you know, you're, you're hearing all these things. And the implication was that basically everyone's going to be so bored and horny. They're not going to have anything to do, but have sex and masturbate like crazy. And what our data tell us is that that's not actually what's happening. And that a lot of people are just too stressed, too anxious, uh, to, to really even be in the mood at all. And then you have that compounded by the fact that it's just a lot harder to, to date and hook up because of the distancing and other restrictions. Yeah. I, I don't, I think I, I think I kept track. I think it took me like three to six weeks before I like actually masturbated for the first time during all this. I was quarantined with my girlfriend for like the first 50 days. So like there was, I, there was definitely like a little mini, mini sex boom, but that like after two weeks, all right, we fucked in that room. We fucked in that room. We fucked in that room. Uh, we, we did that thing. We accidentally had anal once, uh, you know, I'm, when is this going to be over? <laughs> and and definitely- so, you know, I think this is why everybody's buying a new house right now is because they need new rooms to <laughs> have sex in. <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, it, it took a while for me to want to do anything. And I just, it's tough. I, ha- you know, I'm in a relationship right now and she also is finding herself now fluctuating with her libido, but like, gosh, our sex drives, they're rarely overlapping at the right times. And I know it's been a struggle for us um, to like have grace with each other and to not take it personally. Uh, Like I know I've been feeling a little sexually inadequate lately. And so, and you're finding that is amongst coupled or um, coupled or people in relationships of various types, people who already have sexual partners. Are you finding that that's uh, common or yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a decline across the board. Uh, you know, singles are struggling in their sex lives the same way as people in relationships. And for people who are living with a partner, it's kind of paradoxical in that you'd think if you're seeing each other a lot more, you have so many more opportunities for sex, but you also have so many more opportunities to irritate one another. And, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of people who are having higher levels of conflict right now. And the more conflict people are experiencing, the less likely they are to have sex. And when they do have sex, it's less enjoyable. And so that's, you know, another big part of the story here for a lot of people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's just been really, it it has been tough to talk about that with a partner. And uh, I I don't know how (laughs) I'm kudos to anyone who's just like making it through this thing, (laughs) whose relationships like make it through. I'm hoping mine survives it. It's just... (laughs) (laughs) yep and uh, hey you're you're in good company with all of this because it's a challenge for everybody what so so you talk you mentioned like there's all these like headlines about sex and this and that and a common thing is this pipeline of like a study comes out and then like an abstract is like publicly freely available and then people write articles uh based on this abstract and then an editor who doesn't even write the article makes the headline that's supposed to get people to the article. So we start with probably what was a really sincere, awesome, in-depth study on, I don't know, cock rings. And then by the time it gets to the the editor, the top editor who's you know crafting the headline, and we haven't even gone to the social media manager who crafts the <laughs> shitty tweet for it. But it's like we get from this like nice, sincere study to like uh, cock rings cure ED, right? It's like, what is the big problem with sex study headlines? If you could fix what's going on with those? I mean, the single biggest problem I see is that the headlines are, are a vast oversimplification and they tend to take correlational studies where you don't have a 
direct cause and effect association, and they make it sound like it's very causal. Uh, to give you one example, um, this is one of my favorite all-time bad sex headlines. Uh, it was based on a study where they looked at women, college women who either were or were not using condoms with their partners. And they looked at their scores on a scale of depression. And so they wrote this whole article about how exposure to semen <laughs> might be linked to whether or not women experience depressive symptoms. And basically, you know, their, their sort of conclusion in the study was that, um, you know, when you have seminal exposure, so when you're not using condoms, women had a lower reported rate of, of depressive symptoms. And so there was this headline then in the Daily Mail, I believe, that said uh, that uh, semen cures depression, right? Uh, and it's like, no, that's that's not what it said. And that's not the right conclusion to draw here. Yeah, we keep seeing these studies where like semen cures. It's like the whoever the semen salesman is, is like working real hard. We know it's a salesman and not a sales person uh because we know exactly which but it's like always like <laughs> semen cures your face cures depression cures this just please take some of it we're trying there's too much of it semen is the new prozac apparently i don't but, know but i don't I, are there really that many sex studies that are causal or because they seem to almost all be correlations well, and there's a reason for that. And it's because it's very hard to get any funding to do sex research in the United States. And the only people who are really quite successful at it are people who are studying STDs mm -hmm. and uh, HIV and um, uh, sexual assault, you know. So it, when it's really more the darker side of sex, that's where the funding's available. But if you want to study pleasure and orgasm and fantasies and things like that, there's no funding to do it unless you can get some private agency uh, to, to do that. And there just aren't aren't a lot of sources. And this is a big part of the reason why so many of the sex researchers I know have uh, moved to Canada, because Canada has a lot more funding available to do sex research. And so Canada is actually sort of like the the hotbed for, for great sex research these days, because their government actually funds it. Yeah, something I'm always curious about with uh, you know you sexual academics. I, I remember reading about the uh, read, realizing this was even an issue when I read uh, Dr. Chantel Tibble's book, Exposure. I'm realizing that y'all don't get taken as seriously sometimes. Do you face sure. that in, in trying to do research that you say what you do research on and you kind of get taken less seriously? Yeah, that definitely has happened. Oh, but just one other thing I wanted to say about the previous mm -hmm. question was the reason why we have more survey-based studies where you can't do cause and effect is because th those are the only kinds that are feasible to do when you don't have funding, right? So if you want to do the more hardcore experiments, it's just hard to do when you don't have money to buy the equipment. But what, what would the hardcore, more hardcore experiment look like? Well, that might be putting people in an fMRI machine to see what's actually happening in the brain when they're uh, stimulated on different parts of their body or, um, you know, using technological equipment to s see what's actually happening in the body when people have an orgasm or you're doing hormonal analyses, you know, things where you're actually trying to, to collect those biomarkers or, or really like look inside the body. It's, it's much harder to do that unless you've got money for the really expensive equipment. And you're also, it sounds like you're also talking about experiments that involve like participants who might be doing some sort of sexual activity kind of under observation, right? 
Yes. And so you got to pay those people <laughs> to come in. You know, it's not easy to uh, get participants to come into a lab for, I don't know how many hours and to, um, you know, sometimes stimulate themselves to orgasm or whatever. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of funding that's necessary to do that kind of work. If you really want to understand something like the science of orgasm, and there's actually still a lot that we don't know about it. You know, most of our knowledge of orgasm is still kind of based on the 1960s research of masters and Johnson, who were working with very limited tools at that time. And so we have all of these assumptions about sex and the sexual response cycle, but they're based on research conducted 50 years ago before we had any modern technology. So it's really ripe for us to revisit those things, but the money just isn't there to do it. Right. And the money doesn't want to fund uh, the the in-person observation type stuff. Is that is there an ethical barrier to it or is it really just like people are too squeamish to fund it? Generally, the ethical things are, are, are not the problem unless you're working at, uh, say, a religious affiliated university. Uh, you know, for example, I had uh, a colleague who wanted to uh, do some research on sexual orientation and she was at a Catholic college and her university told her she couldn't even ask about sexual orientation on a survey because it was too personal, right? So, you know, sometimes there are ethical constraints and limits that are actually just totally unfounded because they're driven more by ideology than they are by anything else. Uh, the, the bigger issue is just really the, the access, um, to, to funding to be able to do this kind of work. And, you know, you have this tendency to, uh, get called a pervert when you're a sex researcher. You know, uh, I have, um, you know, a colleague who wanted to do a study where, she wanted to look at participants who were sexually aroused or not, and then look at their decision-making. And so the way she was going to have participants get aroused was to watch pornography. And her university told her that she couldn't show her participants porn because they're a state university. And then the state might cut their budget because they're using <laughs> government funding to show, you know, college students porn, you know, was sort of their reasoning. <laughs> right, right. Like, yeah. Some idiot politician would say, let's cut an entire university's funding because of one experiment where they watched a little bit of porn. Let's just see how that plays. But but it's actually not that outlandish. Like I have had colleagues who have had federal grants to do sex studies, and there have been members of the US House of Representatives who get on the floor and you could see them on C SPAN who were saying we need to defund this. The government should not be funding research on sex, you know, and, and and so that's part of the reason why the funding is so hard to get is because there is so much political resistance to it. And do you think part of that also involves those really crappy headlines, those sensationalized headlines? Sure. Um, and, and the, and the research you did for, uh, you're doing for COVID and the effects on COVID, um, who is that being funded by? Uh, we have is some... it Soros? Is it? I hear he funds everything. <laughs> uh, no. So, I mean, for that study, we, we only had very limited funding to work with, but it was internal funding that actually came from the Kinsey Institute, where they had some funds to, that they gave us to, to help recruit participants. Uh, so, yeah, it's... If you wanted to do a grant funded study on this topic, you know, good luck. <laughs> and, and what else are we finding, uh, you know, under quarantine during COVID? Uh, what, what other, I get, you know, non sensationalized headline findings or correlations have you been finding? Sure. We, we looked at a lot of things. One that I think was interesting was how many people have reached out to an ex 
since the pandemic began, we found that about one in five of our participants had done so. And, and they did it for a, a wide range of reasons. You know, sometimes it's just because they were lonely and wanted, uh, to talk to someone who's kind of comforting, but other times it was because they're in a relationship right now, but being stuck with their partner 24 hours a day made them realize, oh, I actually like my previous partner more. And so they want to get back together. And so, uh, you know, that's kind of been interesting to look at. Um, but one of the other cool things we found is that, you know, while rates of sex have gone down, while rates of masturbation have gone down, there's a lot of sexual experimentation right now. Uh, it's, it's somewhere, you know, 20 to 25% of our participants say they've tried something new in the bedroom since the pandemic started. And that could be they shared and acted on their sexual fantasies for the first time or had sex in a new place in the home, or they tried sexting or phone sex or used a sex toy. So it's interesting that even though we're having less sex, there's kind of this sexual revolution going on in a lot of ways where people are getting more experimental and trying new things. That's dope. That's dope. I I would be really interested and I I, I don't know if functionally the time has passed on it but like i would have been interested in a study of um you know couples who don't live together usually quarantine together yep and then the effects of re-separating because like i have ever since like i had to i stopped hunkering down with megan i found myself googling attachment theory being like oh fuck i felt like like i got used to this daily constant um, like, you know, hit of girlfriend to my bloodstream and now it's spaced out. And then if we text a little less than a day, it almost feels like even longer. Yep. So I'd be like, I was used to having you like all the time. And <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so many interesting relationship dynamics mm-hmm. going on right now. And, you know, you also had some people who just moved in at the beginning of quarantine who didn't have a previous relationship, but they're like, well, I I need a buddy to get through this situation with. And so they kind of like rushed into doing it. And then you also have people who were in long distance relationships who then could no longer see each other because they couldn't travel. And then you've got people who are polyamorous, who it's like they're living with one partner, but they can't see their other partners. And it's just the the relationship dynamics, I think, are just so complex and fascinating. You want to hear crazy. Uh, The the whole poly angle just further exacerbates it. I got one friend who... um, she and her her primary partner live with another partner of hers and like his his one of his girlfriends but that partner goes out and like just makes out with everybody in the state of California of all places and he's like making out with all these people and then comes home and they're like hey can you like please not and he's like uh I want to make out with people that exact scenario came up <laughs> in our study where, uh, you know, you had people who were polyamorous who were saying, I have one partner who's taking this situation really seriously and we're social distancing. And I have this other partner who's going out and hooking up and I think I need to break up with them because they're putting my other partners at risk. And so, yeah, the, I, I find pe- that poly people should have crushed this because we were already had the concept of pods. Yeah. Like all you do is take your polycule and really close it off. And like, you're there, you're done. You did it. Like you've been doing this forever. Why are you failing at the moment when it's most important? Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, that's so in terms of like the things that have surprised me uh, about the data, I, I think, 
you know, for me, part of the surprising thing was just that you had all this media speculation that our data just didn't back up. Uh, you know, there were also the media claims about like people are watching a lot more porn, but on average, our participants are actually watching less porn. Um, you know, there's a small number of people who are watching a heck of a lot more porn than they used to. Um, but you know, so what, what has been said in the media and, you know, also this idea of a COVID baby boom, like that's not going to happen. Right. Uh, so, so I think that that's been, one of the things that's been really useful from our study to show is that you have all this rampant media speculation that's just totally wrong. And so maybe uh, we need to be a little more cautious in the future when it comes to, to that kind of speculation. And we can use our data as a guide um, that could be helpful for future situations, because if we can identify the challenges that people are experiencing right now, we can come up with a plan to help us better deal with situations like this in the future, because this probably isn't going to be the last pandemic we're going to experience in our lives. And this pandemic isn't going away anytime soon. So we need to identify the problems now so that we can try and fix them later. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel this way sometimes when I see the, the articles written about st the studies I'll never read. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's like, what now? Like, you know, you say, okay, we found a correlation of this and this, and you say like, okay, if we can get this data, we can come up with a plan for it. And like, do you have an example of something you found, whether it's in your COVID study or a previous study where like you found data, you found information, then you were actually, there's a, a plan was able to be made. Yeah. So, I mean, as one example, you can look at research on infidelity and why people cheat in the first place. And also, you know, what are the effects of, of cheating on the relationship in, in the long term? And when you start to understand the complex dynamics that goes into cheating, that can really inform say the practice of sex therapy and couples therapy. So when you're dealing with couples, um, you can have then a, a data driven guide on how to kind of walk your patients through that type of scenario and the key issues you need to pay attention to and and have some sense of what the likely trajectory is going to be based on the the situation that happened there so that's so actually a lot of the work that i do these days uh, is i also take data and research and i translate it for sex therapists so i put on these workshops uh continuing education workshops for sex therapists and lately they've largely been about my sexual fantasy research, but it's, it's taking the data, giving them the tools they need so that they can apply evidence-based therapy. Mm -hmm. You got this book out now, which by the way, I, I'm so sorry your book has to come out during a pandemic. I feel right. bad for like so many of these guests I'm having on. They're like, I've got a book and I know there's like a lot of really big things going on, but like, Please read it. <laughs> it's right. It's great. I swear. Oh <laughs> uh, man, what's it was? Uh, but but you know, you got this baby. You've been doing. Uh, you've been doing a study for a couple years on desire. Mm -hmm. um, I had a previous guest on who did um, did some research on Sarah Constantine. She did um, some research on that as well with with female desires uh, specifically. And, and what were some of like the big findings uh, that you had from that study? So and, I and, and I would say also, uh, what kind of plan, if there are there any plans on like what to do with that data? Yeah. 
So I surveyed 4,175 Americans from all 50 states, ranging in age from 18 to 87, about their sexual fantasies. So what's their biggest fantasy of all time? And I looked at hundreds of different people, places, things they might have ever fantasized about. And the whole book is about the, the key things that I learned. So I talk about the most common sexual fantasies, and I find that there are seven of them. But, uh, you know, a couple of the biggest ones are multi-partner sex. You know, almost everybody has fantasized about a threesome or orgy before. BDSM, most people have fantasized about some kind of power play or bondage. Uh, and novelty and adventure is, you know, one of the other big three fantasies where people are just fantasizing about mixing it up, trying something that's new and different for them. Oftentimes just having sex in a different setting or location, the most popular setting being public sex, right? Uh, that's that's one of the biggest turn-ons for people where there's that potential thriller risk of being caught. So I look at the most and least common fantasies, what your fantasies say about you in terms of how they're connected to your personality, your sexual history, and then also how to talk to your partner about your fantasies most effectively. And I find that the people who are sharing and acting on their fantasies are the most sexually satisfied. They have the happiest relationships, the fewest sexual difficulties. And so, you know, that tells us that there's really something to be said for getting more in touch with our fantasies. And so I've actually been teaching these two day workshops to, to sex therapists where, uh, it's 16 hours of me. <laughs> doing a deep dive into the data and telling them how they can use it in their therapy practice. And a big part of that is what are the most effective ways for partners to communicate about their fantasies with one another so that they can tap into those benefits. Mm -hmm. So we, we talk a lot about that in the workshops. You know, when I say that people who are sharing and acting on their fantasies tend to be more satisfied. It's not an all or nothing thing, right? There's always variability. And that's another one of the big points that I always make in my writings and in the uh, lectures and workshops that I give is that, you know, different things work for different people. And sometimes uh, sharing and acting on fantasies doesn't turn out well. For example, in the case of threesomes, like I find that that's the most popular sexual fantasy, but it's the fantasy that's least likely to turn out well because in your mind, like, hey, it sounds really hot to have these two other people here with me, but then you actually get in that situation and you're like, and maybe you're with your partner and you start to feel jealous or insecure or you're not sure what to do, what with who and when and what goes where, you know? So, you know, fantasy and reality don't always match up. And, uh, you know, I think that's a really important point to, to make here is that, you know, just because you try acting on a fantasy doesn't guarantee that it's going to go well. And there's all kinds of practical considerations and research and communication that has to happen in advance uh, to increase the odds of a positive experience. Mm -hmm. And your book, you know, based on this research, and there's a lot of correlations in it, I'm assuming. Mm -hmm. uh, I have the book, will be reading it. Uh <laughs> But I have not read. It, but I'm assuming there's a lot of you know these correlations in there. And you you know you said what you do for other clinicians, like you put on these workshops. But everyday person, you know the the awesome fan who is listening in, they want to go get your book. They're a sex nerd. They're sex positive. They want to learn more uh, to improve their sex and dating lives and their love lives. So they get this book and they read and take in all this data. Like what is it? What is it that you want them to take away? when they're done with the book and they put it back in their bookshelf and they're like, that was really interesting. But past that for their own sex lives, like what is it that you would hope that they will take away and apply? So the first part 
is to recognize that your fantasies probably aren't as weird or unusual as you think they are. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people who have a lot of shame about their fantasies and guilt and embarrassment, and that prevents them from uh, ever talking about them with a partner. And it also encourages a lot of people to try to suppress those thoughts, to try and run away from them. And when you don't have that that sort of level of self-acceptance, that increases the odds of you having performance difficulties when it comes to sex or not just not getting what you want out of sex. And that can lead to sexual dissatisfaction and relationship conflict. And so I, I think a big part of the book is helping people to better understand their own fantasies, to accept them. And, and that's really the first step to opening the door to having those conversations with your partner about your fantasies. So, so self-acceptance is part, but then it's also giving people the tools they need to communicate more effectively and also what they need to know if they're thinking about actually acting on their fantasy to increase the odds of a better experience. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, one other thing is that it will also help you to better understand your partner's fantasies and why your partner's fantasies are sometimes different from yours. How so? <laughs> well, Different people are turned on by different things. And it's okay if you don't have all of the same sexual fantasies. But how do you manage situations where you're turned on by one thing and your partner isn't? You know, so that's something that I dive into in terms of how you deal with those kinds of desire discrepancies. And, and, you know, one way that you can approach it is to maybe step back and say, okay, instead of focusing on this very specific sex act that turns you on, let's ask a different question. How do you want to feel during sex, right? What are the emotions, sensations you want to get? And then can we craft a new scenario that's mutually agreeable to both of us that still taps into those needs, but that Mm -hmm. we're both on board with? Yeah. And would an example of that be, say, someone wants to try like choking and a partner's not into it. And it's like, well, what do you want to experience from the choking? Oh, I want to, I want to experience like some submission, maybe a lack of power and control, a pinch of danger. Okay. I'm not comfortable choking. How about ropes? Maybe we could do ropes in a way that will accomplish that. Oh yeah. I think that, you know, cause like, okay, then that one makes, I'm comfortable learning knots. I'm not comfortable almost killing you. And then right. it's like, okay. And then we could still experience the, the feeling choking that kind of on, Exactly. It's, it's kind of transforming the fantasy in a way, but you're still getting what you want out of it. Uh, so, so I think that people just have this tendency to get too hung up on, you know, it has to follow the exact script that you have in your head. And it's like, Mm. you know, maybe not. And actually that might not be the best way for it to work out. Yeah, a little bit of flexibility. And I'm someone who loves setting up scripts. When I do go into like a scene or like a specific scene, I set something up with someone, especially if it's like a stranger, we craft this whole thing. But I also have to be realistic. Like, I got to be flexible. Uh, We're going to do this glory hole scene. All right. She might talk more. And maybe in my fantasy, there wasn't dialogue, but that's okay. Like, don't ruin the whole, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's a, you know, it can still be fun. What would you say about, um, fantasies that maybe they think they want realized but they don't actually want realized but they think they do like i totally want that and then they do it and then they're like oh my god i only wanted to jerk off to that i didn't actually want to do it (laughs) so you know that's definitely where i see that happening a lot in the case of group sex fantasies right Mm -hmm. Uh, just because those dynamics are so much more complex and a lot of people find that 
when they get into that situation, they feel really inhibited and anxious rather than aroused. And so, you know, maybe a guy gets in that situation and he can't get hard because like he feels all this performance anxiety because now it's not just one partner, uh, but it's, it's multiple partners. And so the, the pressure can be a lot higher. And, and maybe he realizes, Hey, this is great to watch in porn. Great to think about and masturbate to, but I don't actually want to do that. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think some people, you know, they, especially, especially if it's a group sex or threesome, something that's like a partnered fantasy, as opposed to like your own personal fantasy. I think it's so important to like have that flexibility in the moment, but also afterwards, like just because a fantasy didn't go the way you want, doesn't mean either that relationship has to end. You know, yes. it's like you have, a, if you have a, if you go to an orgy and like you see her sucking some guy's dick or you see, you know, you see your girlfriend doing this with someone else and it doesn't feel good. It doesn't mean she's like some whore, bad person, whore who you have to kick out. Yeah, it can just now be a thing you both agree you don't do again yeah. or you're going to do it again differently. Um, I think some people, like they see the, that image that they thought was really hot and now it's just stuck in their head. Uh, you know, they're their partner blowing somebody else. It's like, yeah, they blew someone else. Like it's not the biggest deal in the world. Like it's not the end of the world. I would suggest you start with making out with someone else and see how that felt. But like, it doesn't have to end the relationship. Uh, and I, and sadly, like I see that happen so often where it's like, we had a threesome, it didn't go well. And now we have to break up. Cause I can't stop thinking about you with that other person. Yeah. Or we tried having an open relationship, but we had a fight about it. And so now we have to go back to being monogamous, you know, with all of these fantasies. And this is what you described as something I talk a lot about in the book is that just because it doesn't go well doesn't mean that has to be the end. And you think of every experience, every sexual experience is a learning experience. And what did go well, what didn't go well, what can you learn from that? How can you make it better the next time? And I think when it comes to acting on our fantasies, sometimes it takes a bit of practice to perfect it and get it to where we want it to be and where it's pleasurable and satisfying for everyone involved. And not to be Orwellian about it, but like a little bit of double think won't hurt. You know, like you can forget you, like you can actively say to yourself, I'm going to forget about her blowing that other person or my partner blowing that other person. And then you can, if you can forget that you forgot that a little bit, I feel like that will help you for the next time you maybe do want to engage in that fantasy again. Yep. Hey, yeah. can I ask you a question? Please. <laughs> so a, a question I often get asked is what happens when somebody acts on a fantasy that they've had? And, you know, they enjoyed it and had a good time. Do they still continue to fantasize about that afterwards or do they switch to having a new fantasy? And this is one of those times where having longitudinal data would be really useful, like where I would study people's fantasies at different points in time and look at what actually happens. follow me for 20 years and let's see. I'm perfect for that one. So, so what <laughs> happened in your case when, you know, you would act on a fantasy and do you move on to the next one or do you keep fantasizing about the same thing as before? For me, it's just depended on what it was and how it went. Like, you know, the, for example, let's just take the glory hole thing for, for starters. I went to like an adult bookstore and I don't want to talk about it too much. Uh, cause I still haven't, but like, let's just say didn't go well, didn't go the way it was supposed to. Uh, and, but now I've done it like in my apartment and it's been great. Even like the first, like the first time I did it, it ended up not being like who I thought it was, but it was still fun and hot when I learned new data after the event. And then I went back to doing it. And then the second lady uh, comes over and she was like very 
talkative and she wanted to like do stuff like that was like under and around the curtain. And I realized, oh, now I need to just include. So I've been able to adjust this fantasy mm-hmm. up until two nights ago when like best glorial experience I've had to date. <laughs> Because I've been able to improve upon it as I learn things. Um, and then there's other stuff where I'm like, um, you know, I can like say that was really fun. That was really hot. And I don't necessarily need to do that again. I guess a concern I would have is like, will I try to go bigger and bigger? Uh, mm-hmm. And I, I and will that be for healthy reasons that are sincerely like, oh, I actually want to do that? Or am I trying to outdo myself? I'm not sure. The, uh, it's something I try to be aware of, but I, I don't know about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do sometimes like group sex. I still enjoy. Um, I still have fun being in that environment, but I'm not like always super horny for an orgy when as opposed to when I was like 25, I probably like always wanted to be at an orgy. <laughs> Now I'm like, ah, I could go to like I've def I've been invited to an orgy and been like, eh, I'm not really in the mood. <laughs> and other like people, <laughs> right? It's like, I don't know. It's so it, it it is interesting. It's something I I try to think about so I can be self aware. That way, yeah. I'm not trying to do fantasies that aren't sincerely mine because mm-hmm. I don't want to get into this place where I'm trying to outdo myself. That doesn't sound healthy to me. I don't know. Still, to my knowledge, I do a check in like every eight months in my head, but it's like currently still I do not um, uh, I'm not currently into men. I am semi thankful right now that I'm not because I feel like I'd be just it'd be a constant cock through this glory hole entrance of mine all the time and I'd never get anything done. So, <laughs> well, and it is, you know, statistically on average, easier to find a hookup if you're looking for a male partner. And in fact, I know a lot of uh, bisexual men who are, they're actually predominantly interested in women, mm. but they find it much harder to have casual sex with women. And so they mostly just hook up with men. Right. Yeah. So, right. Like, like, and, and the easiest, I feel like the easiest uh, form of a male partner to get is like, who wants their dick sucked? Anyone? Just this is the door you walk, th- you know, and so I don't know. Uh, um, I do find myself like, again, thinking about like, am I into something that I'm thinking about or am I just trying to outdo myself? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. But I feel like I'd be if you ever do that study, I think I'm a good <laughs> candidate. Uh, I'll, I'll put you at the top of the list for participants. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, before we go, do you want to? Can you um, just tell uh, my listeners? I don't think we've really ever gotten to share this with them in three hundred whatever episodes. But uh, can you tell them a little bit about what the Kinsey Institute is uh, and, and why it's an important institution that we have in this country? Yeah. So the Kinsey Institute was founded by Alfred Kinsey, uh, who conducted the pioneering studies of human sexuality in the Played United by States. Liam Neeson in the 1940s and 50s and popularized in the (laughs) 2000-ish movie uh, starring Liam Neeson. But his research fundamentally changed everything we thought we knew about sex. And he published these books that became international bestsellers and really like challenged a lot of the stereotypes uh, about human sexuality and showed that, for example, homosexuality is much more common than previously thought and that women are masturbating and enjoying sex and having lesbian experiences. And it's like, so he conducted this work that showed the enormous diversity in human sexuality. And that's a big part of the mission of the Institute today is that it's really the hub uh, for, for, sex research. And we study all different kinds of things from um, relationships and intimacy to diversity and sexual behavior to uh, hormones to animals. Like we're, we're looking at 
at everything in trying to help us better understand uh, the science of sex and do so in a way that we can use to better and improve our, our sex lives and relationships. So a big part of the mission of the Kinsey Institute is to um, help increase awareness and education uh, of sexuality issues. Mm-hmm. And do we have a lot of institutions similar to Kinsey in this country? No. <laughs> so, um, you know, there are actually not many sex researchers in the United States, and there are very few, just even graduate programs that are focused on human sexuality. And, you know, I hate to say it, but there's very little sex education in general, even outside of elementary school and high school. You know, most doctors who go to medical school for four years, on average, get around 10 hours of sex ed in that whole time. And it's like, you know, we're trusting our doctors to take care of our health and they're getting very inadequate sex education. And lots of psychologists only get maybe one course on it in their whole training. So there's really so much work to be done. And that's why I think places like the Kinsey Institute are so important because we're trying to fill that void in knowledge and increase education. And is the Kinsey Institute funded by the state or privately funded? Uh, it's it's a little bit of both um, because it's it's housed at Indiana University, which is a state university. But a lot of our funding comes from uh, donors and sponsors who just really believe and support in sex research. Fantastic. And uh, and and tell me what you want. It's available now on uh, bookshelves if you're if you're brave enough to go into a bookstore. Uh, during these days, <laughs> it can also be ordered online. There's also an audiobook version that I recorded myself, and um, I hear that my my voice is very soothing to animals. So, <laughs> uh, f- fun story. Um, a, a friend of mine was uh, traveling across the country, moving, and she had her dogs in the car with her. She put my audiobook on, and she said when she got to her destination, her dogs had never been more calm <laughs> for a road trip. So, hey, if you're you know looking to calm the dogs down and learn about sex it's a <laughs> good way to go but they're also having like way more group dog sex so i don't <laughs> know you know just your mileage may vary uh justin thank you so much for chatting with us and and where else can people find you online so i run a blog it's called sex and psychology at sexandpsychology.com, where i blog about the latest sex research three times a week you can find links to my books my social media if you want to see what i'm up to when i'm not studying sex and uh, you can feel free to send any questions you have because i sometimes answer them on the blog fantastic thank you again for chatting with us and why don't you go ahead and say goodbye to everybody <laughs> hey thanks so much for having me goodbye Hey, I want to give a shout out to Chris Van Norman on The New Heart Buddy, longtime fan whore, honorable veteran, and the proud owner of a new beating heart. Glad you're doing okay, buddy. Please don't die. I need the downloads. (laughs) Hope you all enjoy my conversation with Justin Lay Miller. That was a fun one. Here's another fun one for you. Are you one of those people who kind of lust over me on Instagram? Are you one of the 17 who do? Mm-hmm. Well, on OnlyFans, we've got this new thing where we bribe Billy into doing shit he wouldn't normally do on camera. So right now we are raising a certain amount of money to get me to come on a dude's face and then share, share it with them over on the fans. So, hey, if that's something you've ever wanted to see me do. It's time to go throw five, twenty, fifty, hundred dollars down to help make that happen. 
And when we hit the target price, boy, I'm going to do it because, you know, I'm straight, but my wallet is very bisexual and you can go lust after me on the OnlyFans at OnlyFans.com slash call me Billy. But if you want to check out my more safer work social media, I'm on Twitter at the Billy Prasita. I'm on Instagram at Billy is Prasita, which you have to spell the whole thing out because I am shadow band uh and if you want to enjoy some sex positive memes and man whore podcast news or get yourself some man whore merch go smash that like button on the man whore podcast facebook fan page do you want to support the podcast do you want to keep a roof over this whore's head support the show on patreon and join a fabulous community of like-minded listeners just like you we got a Facebook group. We got a group chat. We've got our monthly Zoom hangout calls and more. And you can be a part of that for as little as $2 at patreon.com slash podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash podcast. Uh, and, and I regret to inform everyone that um, if, if you don't know already, I regret to inform you that Betty Dodson, the mother of masturbation, uh, has died over the weekend. She was, I believe, 91 years old. I like to think she she went out on a good O, but uh, I, I know her health had been in decline for the last couple of months, and uh, and she is now no longer with us. Uh, Betty Donson, she is responsible for thousands, probably tens of thousands, uh, uh, probably more. Uh, who knows how many? Count Betty Donson leaves behind her a legacy of female pleasure, of fabled orgasms discovered. There's probably, who knows, thousands of vulvas she's, she's personally helped bring to climax. Normally, I think you're supposed to like kind of pour out, pour out some champagne for the dead homies. But, uh, you know, I think we should all jerk off this week and and leave a load for Betty Dodson in her honor, because that's why I think she'd want us doing right now, especially during such a stressful week. Uh, Of course, uh, many of you have heard Betty Dodson on this podcast, so I want to remind everybody of how much of a badass she was with uh, with we're going to go out on a little clip from episode 68 with Betty Dodson. Rest in power, Betty, and stay slutty. I have done hands-on from day one. So, uh, U.S. government, uh, Board of Education, whatever the, uh, ASEC certification, <coughs> go fuck yourselves. <laughs> because I'm doing it my way, and I am batting nearly a 100% success rate. You do you, boo-boo. Go argue that. I'm not trying to argue. A woman comes here. She spends what? an afternoon with me. She lives with. She leaves with her orgasm. I know what I'm doing. I am working more in the Wilhelm Reich tradition. You bet I have my hands on you. I don't know what the Wilhelm Reich is. But Reich I, was the only brilliant sex therapist on the planet. The rest of them are Freudian and full of shit. 